Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Good afternoon and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. I'm Dan Malthrop, Chief Executive here and also a proud member. And it's a joy, a privilege, and a pleasure to introduce our speaker today. He's the author of Decolonizing Wealth, Indigenous Wisdom to Heal Divides and Restore Balance. And his name is Edgar Villanueva. Decolonizing Wealth came out in 2018. And the book offers an analysis of and an alternative to the colonialist and racial dynamics that have historically defined both the finance and philanthropy industries. For many in the mainstream, this is new and disruptive thinking. For people of color and for communities around the world who have been the historical subjects of colonial rule, however, this is simply clear-eyed thinking. And this moment represents a more public surfacing of an ongoing critical conversation about the structures that guide philanthropy. If this idea that there are structural inequities rooted in colonialism that are hampering philanthropy's efforts is difficult to understand. I have no doubt that Mr. Villanueva will share stories that will illustrate his point. And if recent coverage of his book is any indication, this critique is taking hold and is shaping philanthropy's future. The book has been featured in the New York Times and Vox.com, in the Stanford Social Innovation Review, and in the Chronicle of Philanthropy, among many other publications. I want to tell you a little bit about Mr. Villanueva. He's an enrolled member of the Lumbee Tribe of North Carolina, and he began his philanthropic career in 2005, working as a senior program officer for the Kate V. Reynolds Charitable Trust. He continued his work as a program officer with the Marguerite Casey Foundation before his current position as vice president of programs and advocacy with the Schott Foundation for Public Education. He is chair of the board of directors of Native Americans in Philanthropy and a board member of the Andrus Family Fund and also an instructor at Grand Valley State University. He's in town today uh, speaking with the United Philanthropy Forum Annual Conference and there are many people who are connected with that conference uh, who we are grateful to for helping to connect us with Edgar. Esteemed guests, members and friends of the City Club of Cleveland, please join me in welcoming Edgar Villanueva. Hi, Cleveland. Hi. Uh, well, I have to say uh, first, thank you for allowing me to be here. I love the energy in the room. I heard the buzz when I came in, and I, I don't know what I was expecting, but I, I think uh, from, you know, as someone who doesn't live here and I don't, uh, didn't have a lot of uh, knowledge about the, Cle uh, the Cleveland City Club, I was thinking it's gonna be real quiet. And <laughs> so I love the energy, I love the diversity in the room, and thank you for being here. Um, hello to my relatives. Thank you for welcoming me into your territory and want to acknowledge uh, your, you all here being uh, in your support and the land that we're on today. Thank you for that. Who's your people? That's the first question, Lumbee Indians, which is my tribe, that we ask when we meet a stranger. It's as if we're working out a massive imaginary family tree for humanity in our heads, and we need to place you on the appropriate limb, branch, or twig. 
We even sell t-shirts back home in North Carolina to say, that say, who's your people? Yes, my people are Native American, but I hate to disappoint some of you. I can't build a canoe from scratch <laughs> or catch a deer with my bare hands because, you know, my identity as a Native American in this country is complicated due to the history of colonization. It's been a long journey for me to decolonize my mind and to deeply connect with my indigenous values. I've grown to really appreciate those values that have been passed down to me, particularly from my mother, um, and especially as one of the few Native Americans who have worked for the past 15 years in this small private bubble of extreme concentrated wealth and privilege, the space of philanthropy and social finance. This is a sector that is inherently connected to Wall Street and business and aims to support the nonprofit industrial complex in order to nurse the wounds caused by poverty and racism. We'll talk about that a little bit more in a moment. As it turns out, looking back, for me, the first actual philanthropist that I ever knew was my mother, or mama, as I call her. Not that she would ever use the word philanthropy. When asked what I do after 15 years, she finally will say philanthropy, but she still kind of stumbles over the word, and I would be willing to bet money that she can't spell it. Can you agree that words in English made of Greek roots were created so that we would have no idea what doctors were saying? <laughs> so they can charge us lots of money when they diagnose you with hypergargalesthesia? Yes, that's a real condition. It means extreme sensitivity to tickling. I actually have it. <laughs> but I use the word philanthropy because if, if you look at the Greek roots, philanthropy means love of humanity. Now back to my family for a moment. To enable me to have a better life, my mom, a single mother, worked two to three shifts a day for most of my childhood. Two of those shifts were as a domestic worker, providing nursing assistance, helping sick, frail, elderly, mostly wealthy folks, a labor of love. Her first shift was at DMV, a nine to five. Looking back, I'm like, oh, that's pretty terrible, right? <laughs> DMV, not anyone's favorite place to go usually. No offense if anyone here works at DMV. <laughs> but then she would go to work providing care in a nursing home um, or someone else's home for a second shift and then a third shift at someone else's home. And if she were lucky, she would get a few hours of sleep between caretaking until the shift ended at 7 a.m. where she would come home, change clothes, and start all over again. Sometimes I would tag along if possible. Many nights I hid in the car until the previous nurse left, nurse left, and then she would come out and get me and sneak me into the house, and I would enjoy that temporary proximity to wealth. I would play their grand pianos, hang out in their libraries. That's where I first discovered my childhood favorite book. Strangely enough was uh, How to Win Friends and Influence People. <laughs> and then I would get tucked away into fancy beds or couches. Now on her precious day off, did this poor woman put her feet up and eat bonbons? No. My mom was doing outreach for her church. She started what they called a bus ministry. This involved not just her Sundays, but also her Saturdays. Actually, our Saturdays, because I was drug alone <laughs> to go with her. If I were lucky, we would stop at Bojangles Fried Chicken, grab a cinnamon bun for substance. Anyone ever been to Bojangles in North Carolina? So good, oh my gosh. 
And then we would spend Saturdays going from neighborhood to neighborhood, uh, interacting with neighbors, knocking on doors, and saying some variation of, hi, I'm Sheila from the church down the road. We just wanted to invite you to come out and attend our services sometimes. If you have kids, we have a bus, and we're happy to come by and pick them up for Sunday school. So then Sunday mornings would come, and we would uh, you know, have this fleet of buses that we would go out and pick up all these kids. The bus will pull up, and most of the times, I was the person to jump out and run to the door to pick up the kids. I would knock on the door and say, hey, I'm here to pick up Tasha or Billy or whoever. And standing at the door waiting for the kids to come out, I saw a lot of bad things that made me feel actually a bit more grateful about my own life. Although my mom and I were poor, there were people who were much poorer, more troubled. Kids were pushed to the door looking a mess, half-dressed, unwashed, or sometimes I'd be sitting in to go fetch them. They'll say, you know, they'll go back in the back, go, and go on in and get them. And I would climb over a man passed out from drinks around by beer cans to get the children from the back room. My mom was passionate about getting kids to church, and the bus ministry program grew to over 300 kids in our small town of Raleigh, 300 kids getting bused in every Sunday to attend church. For years after, and to this day, children, now grown children, come running up to my mom, hugging her, saying, Sister Sheila, Sister Sheila, you probably don't remember me. I was one of the kids that you picked up on that bus, and oh my God, you were so special to me. Most of those kids were just hungry for love. My mother hugged them. She listened to them. There were a lot of kids, and they, were, they would just crawl all over us because they, for some of them, it was the only little bit of light and love that they had in their lives. That's an actual philanthropist right there. Helping those kids was my mom's medicine. Now, what do I mean by medicine? In the indigenous worldview, many kinds of things can be medicine. It can be a place, a word, a stone, a natural phenomenon, a dream, or a life event. Uh, for me, it's like having a coffee date with a friend that like, cracks me up and makes me laugh. It's that thing that makes you feel balanced and all good, and you know that everything's going to be okay moving forward. Have you ever looked back on your life and thought, that situation turned out to be the best thing that could ever happen to me? That was medicine. Anyone can find and use medicine just by allowing your intuition and feelings to determine whether something can be medicine. Now, in my community, the elders say you don't choose the medicine. The medicine chooses you. It's taken me a long time to accept the fact that the medicine that has chosen me is money. Because I mean money? Come on, money corrupts. Money is dirty, even filthy. Money is the root of evil. Doesn't the Bible say that? But what is money but a way to measure value or to facilitate exchange? And what is exchange but a type of relationship between people? Money is a stand-in for the sweat we spend on growing food, sewing clothes, assembling electronics, coding apps, creating entertainment, researching and developing innovations. It's just a proxy for the materials we use, the services granted, the responsibilities shouldered. Materially, money is just a bit of nickel, zinc, copper, a little linen, mostly cotton, some ink, it's basically Kleenexes adorned with pictures of dead presidents. <laughs> Actually, today it's mostly a series of zeros and ones, bytes, data, 
imaginary, harmless, Bitcoin, I don't even understand all these things, right? <laughs> but in fact, take it from someone who graduated from seminary, and that's a conversation we can have at another time if you want. <laughs> the Bible does not say that money is the root of all evil. It says the love of money is the root of all evil. In other words, when we let money be more important than life, when we let money be more important than relationships, when money is more important to us than humanity, therein is the evil. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't problems when money is hoarded, controlled, used to divide people, used to oppress and to dominate, but that's not the money's fault. Humans have used money wrongfully. We've made money more important than human life. We've allowed it to divide us. That is a sin. We forget that we humans made money up out of thin air as a concept, a tool for a complex society, a placeholder for aspects of human relations. We forget that we gave money its power and its meaning. Money should be used as a tool to facilitate relationships, to help us thrive rather than to hurt and divide us. Blaming banksters, capitalism for this awful mess that is the 21st century America has been a popular pastime for academics and for economists and activists who's, who propose signature solutions. Yet one place where solutions are never saw is Native America. Now, I don't need to persuade anybody here how broken the economy is, how it's causing more harm for all except a tiny percent, do I? I can rattle off a list like record level, levels of wealth inequality, recessions, bursting bubbles, bankruptcy, unemployment, debt. We all know that something is wrong. And more and more people are calling out capitalism or neoliberalism for being inherently flawed. And I don't disagree with the opinion held by some that, that capitalism as it current, currently is functioning um, is broken. I just think that the real root of the problem often hides behind capitalism. As Malcolm X said, you can't have capitalism without racism. What if I said to you that it's not about economic models, but it's actually about white supremacy and colonization? Because you see, when it comes to getting or, or giving access to money, white men are usually in charge and everyone else has to be twice or more as good to get half or less as much. The stats are in the book, but take it from me, whether we're talking about philanthropy, which is my field, or venture capital, or bank loans, even municipal bonds, all of the institutions that control access to money are like ivory towers. They can be race, uh, institutions of racism and division. By design, these funders exist many times to preserve wealth and the privilege of a few, rather than uh, to, to create um, a coming together and to tear down and disrupt the us versus them. By design, money has been employed in the name of division, in the name of fear, greed, and envy. So my main argument today is this. In order to heal what hurts, in order to come back together as one human race, in order to restore balance to the land, we need to decolonize wealth. So what does the hulk of a word decolonize mean? <laughs> I'm glad you asked. <laughs> well, first, are we clear uh, about what the word colonization? Are we clear what colonization is? Let's talk about that for a moment. Colonization seems totally normal to us because our history books are full of it. 
I grew up even believing that the colonizers were heroes and, and people that I needed to look up to because that's what I was taught in our public schools. And often the colonizing powers talk about their accomplishments, not with shame, but with a lot of pride. It's actually the strangest thing. Now, conquering is one thing. When you conquer, you travel to a place, you take its resources, you kill the people that get in your way, and then you go home with your spoils. But in colonization, you stick around, you occupy the land, you force the existing indigenous people to become you. It's like a zombie invasion. <laughs> Colonizers insist on taking over the bodies, the minds, and the soul of the colonized. Colonization begins as a conquest, an exploitation motivated by greed and fear, justified by a claim to God-given superiority. Its mantra is divide and conquer, command and control, and above all, exploit. But make no mistake, colonization is an atrocity. It's a close relative of genocide. Initially, colonization is like a rape and causes the first wave of trauma. Later, when the colonizers set down roots and become settlers, colonization becomes more like a virus that infects every human institution and system as well as every human being. We all carry it inside our bodies. And then the collective body, the people and the culture, adapts passing down the adaptations in their genes over generations. Yet the adaptations do not constitute healing. The virus remains, leading to ongoing acts of control and exploitation. The colonizer virus inside culture and institutions is especially dangerous. Our education system reflects the colonizer virus. So does our agriculture and food system. So does our foreign policy. So does our environmental policy. And so does the field of design. And yes, even the realms of wealth, investment, finance, and philanthropy. So decolonization obviously is the process of undoing colonization. Taken literally, decolonization means that the land that was stolen is returned and sovereignty not only over the land and its resources, but also over social structures, traditions, all are granted back to those from whom it was all stolen. <coughs> Excuse me. It means the autonomy of every single native person must be reinstated. Yet when we talk about decolonization like this as a political process, we tend to get stuck and make no headway at all. The truth is there's no future that does not include settlers occupying indigenous lands. Today, in the 21st century, our lives, our families, our businesses, our communities are all intertwined. We're all here together. This is simply the reality of today's world. So another way to understand decolonization is that it is the process of healing from trauma. Because colonization violates us and leaves us traumatized. And note this, this is a fact. Whether you are uh, descended of the colonizer or the colonized, there are trauma um, impacts on all of us. So what we can do is actually focus uh, on decolonization by stopping the cycles of abuse and healing ourselves in order to expand the possibilities for the future. This means that our interdependence is inescapable, so we might as well acknowledge each other's trauma and engage in healing together. Now imagine, <clears throat> if you came from generations of people who were systematically and repeatedly violated in every possible way, imagine that all of your family and friends and your community members regularly experienced events like upheaval, 
abuse, violence, brainwashing, homelessness, forced marches, relocation, death, over hundreds of years. Now imagine that this trauma, the trauma of this experience has been reinforced by government policies, economic systems, and social norms that have systematically denied your people access to safety, mobility, resources, food, education, and positive reflections of themselves. Repeated and ongoing violation, exploitation, and deprivation have had deep, lasting, traumatic impacts, not just at the individual level, but also at, on whole populations, tribes, and nations. This is what's known as collective trauma, historic trauma, intergener intergenerational trauma. We all need healing. This is what my people, the Lumbee tribe of North Carolina, have experienced and continue to experience, as well as many you know, indigenous folks around this country. My people, known as the Lumbee, are the survivors of several tribes who lived along the coast of what is now North Carolina. Those ancestors were the very first point of contact for the Europeans in the 1500s. My people, the Lumbee, have been penetrated and exposed to whiteness for a long, long time, longer than any other native community in North America. So we assimilated to survive. The fact that the shred of anything native even exists in Eastern North Carolina is short of a miracle. Resilience is a, a trendy word that we, uh, we use in conversation about business and insurance and climate. But let me tell you, my people, we really have a corner on resilience. In fact, as I argue in the book, we the resilient, all of us who have been excluded and exploited by today's broken economy, possess exactly the perspective and wisdom needed to fix it. I'm not saying that there's no place for the 1%. It's just that their privilege almost always blinds them to solutions that work best for everyone. So they get to take a seat back from the decision-making table. But make no mistake, decolonization is a process with roles for everyone involved, whether you're rich or poor, funder or recipient, victim or perpetrator. Decolonization is simply about a mind shift, a story shift. White superiority is just a story humans created. Race itself is just a story humans created. Resources being scarce, greed as an inescapable aspect of human nature, and money as the root of evil, all of these are just stories. Over time, these stories have solidified and become familiar and true. They have become articles of faith. Yet our beliefs are just one perspective. And the more rigid our perspective, the more alternative perspectives we miss. Once we understand that the stories are optional, choices we made, we can choose to let go of any beliefs that limit us. Decolonizing wealth or decolonizing funding processes is key to healing. After years of philanthropy, investing more than $130 million, not my money, other people's money, <laughs> I have seen past the field's glamorous, altruistic facade into its colonial shadows. The good old boy networks, the white savior complexes, and the internalized oppression among the few people of color who gain access. I finished the book with seven steps to healing the institutions and the culture around money. First, we need to recognize the pain caused by the accumulation of wealth in the first place how it was made on the backs of indigenous people 
and slaves and low-wage workers, most of them people of color. We need to acknowledge history long past and as recent as yesterday. We need to reopen the wounds and grieve them and apologize for them. We need to listen to each other deeply in order to topple the us versus them paradigm. Then we need to start walking our talk about diversity and equity, building whole new decision-making tables rather than setting one token place at the colonial tables as an afterthought. Finally, we need to put our money where our values are and use money to heal where people are hurting and to stop more hurt from happening. This is what I mean when I say money uses medicine can help us decolonize. Now at this point in this talk, you're probably looking for very linear steps to jump in to reverse the ills of colonization. <laughs> it's not a silver bullet solution. Unfortunately, there's no quick fix for the complexities of colonization. The steps I outline in the book are not necessary, necessarily linear. It's more of a circular process. Certain steps may need to be revisited and the entire process may need to be repeated time and time again. Like any virus, the colonizer virus keeps mutating and adapting. So in order to fully heal, we have to be attentive and we have to get booster shots. Let me tell you what you can do. We must heal ourselves by each taking responsibility for our part in creating or maintaining the colonial framework. We must heal our culture and our institutions by identifying the colonized aspects of our culture and our institutions. Indigenous people and people of color, we have always and continue to be the canaries in the coal mine. We hurt hardest. We experience the negative effects of system collapse first and most dramatically. But that collapse will not spare white people. White people with the least power are already feeling this. As a result, some of them are doing appalling things out of terror and pain, scrambling and clutching to white supremacy, even though we know it's the exact opposite of what will save all of us, including them. Everyone has a responsibility in making things right. Everyone has a role in this process of healing, regardless of whether they've caused or received more harm, because all of our suffering is mutual, all of our healing is mutual, and all of our thriving is mutual. Thank you. Thank you, Edgar. I'm Dan Malthrop again, Chief Executive here at the City Club. Today we are listening to a forum and enjoying a forum with Edgar Villanueva. He's the author of the book, Decolonizing Wealth, Indigenous Wisdom to Heal Divides and Restore Balance. We're about to begin the audience Q&A and we welcome questions from everyone, City Club members, guests, and students. Some are on the Cuyahoga interns and those of you joining us via our live stream. If you'd like to tweet a question, please tweet it at the City Club and our team will work it into the program. Holding our microphones today are content coordinator Bliss Davis and City Club intern Sophia Brewer-Thompson. May we have our first question, please? Uh, yes, when you were talking about the white people who seem desperate now, are you talking about, let's say, the Tea Party, those who are uh, scapegoating immigrants, complaining about safety regulations that are holding them back from uh, achieving the American dream? <laughs> Sums it up. Yeah, you know, in, in my lifetime, I'm relatively young, I like to think. Um, you know, we, I, I have not seen displays of white supremacy in, in the ways that we're seeing it now. And, and, 
And, um, but when we talk about white supremacy, I don't want us to always shift our thinking to the tiki torches. That is like the most gross you know, uh, demonstration of white supremacy that pops into my mind. Um, but white supremacy is, is a culture and a mindset that is pervasive. Um, it's something that we've all internalized, including myself, right? Um, being the way that we've been taught um, that our closeness and proximity to whiteness is, is better. Uh, the way that uh, even in my own community, we've internalized some of that. And, um, you know, uh, when I was growing up, my mom was like, don't hang out with these kids. You need to hang out with the white kids because you're going to be more successful, right? And so there, there are very um, obvious, uh, you know, explosions and demonstrations of white supremacy that are horrifying, um, but we, which we need to obviously address, but also just be aware that um, a, a way of uh, white uh, dominant thinking and culture is just pervasive and through, throughout everything. You look at who's represented in, in the media, entertainment. You look at who controls what books we read and, and what um, books are chosen um, to be taught in universities and, and all of that. So it, it is a, a, massive, a, a major uh, part of our society that we have to continue to name and deconstruct. So, um, our technology is rapidly developing right now, and the gap between the lowest earners and the like, most average Americans and the highest earners in this country keeps expanding. So, how can we, um, I guess some of us are nonprofit professionals and working in the business sphere, how can we encourage others to decolonize wealth when they're at fear of like losing their jobs because perhaps what they do now is gonna be automated or they're at fear at, like if they do support this, it's gonna be a rapid shift and a change that they also have to deal with this technology change. So how can we encourage other people to participate? Yeah, thank you. You know, technology uh, is, is such an important part of our communities and all of the benefits you know, that technology brings for our work. I think for those of us who work in philanthropy, it's a, a sector that we have to absolutely uh, be on top of because most of the, a lot of the new wealth in this country is being generated from the tech industry. And the future philanthropy, I believe, is going to be driven by that sector as well. And a lot of those uh, sort of uh, maybe new money billionaires are not setting up traditional types of foundations and uh, in the way that we many of us are familiar with, like the Ford Foundations and the Kellogg Foundations of the world. And so I'm very interested and I'm watching and looking at how those folks are doing their philanthropy. And of course, right now there's a lot of critique in the world about, uh, about billionaires in general um, and also about how they're doing their philanthropy. I think there's actually some things that we can learn. Um, a lot of those folks are not um, beholden to the old way of doing <laughs> philanthropy that sometimes has been a barrier for our progress. Um, those of us who are part of this self-righteous nonprofit kind of way of doing philanthropy sometimes. I've had a chance to sit with some of these tech uh, giant um, folks who are very wealthy and, who, and have had conversations about their philanthropy. What I appreciate about it is that when you bring in information, you make the case for equity. Um, I've seen them make changes like that. It just makes sense. There's a business case for it. If it's the right thing to do, um, you know, we didn't have to have like five board meetings. We didn't have to issue reports and studies. Um, it was like, Edgar wrote a book, he must know something. Edgar said this, oh, we see that this makes sense, let's do it. So that actually was refreshing for me. 
Now, I think the way that uh, technology is going to impact uh, wealth inequality in this country is just a huge, huge issue to unpack. And at, at some point, like, what is the balance? And, uh, and I think it's, um, you know, we have to build people power. Those of us who don't have the wealth, we have to organize. And we have to um, think about how we hold those industries accountable to protect jobs and, and whatnot. And I think that we have to be bold and unafraid. And uh, that is hard if you're worried about, um, you're, you're in a place, you can't speak out necessarily if you're afraid of losing your job or whatever, but there are places where you can organize outside of work to try to keep, you know, protect worker rights. And that's, um, we're seeing uh, labor unions, for example, in this country being torn apart because um, folks who, who are not, who don't have the interests of workers at heart understand the power of organized labor. So that's just another place. But um, so many aspects of your question I could kind of keep talking about, but I'll just, I'll pause there for others. Thank you. How, how do you, as a white person, how do you help and not get categorized as the white savior complex? Yeah, thank you for that question. You know, I, th I think uh, it really begins, it's, I've been thinking about that a lot. I get asked, like, how can I be a good ally? And I, and I started thinking about white relatives that I love, and I think of, like, oh, they're here, and they're, like, down. Like, they're a part of, like, the family. And then I have other white relatives that um, show up and are doing good work, but sometimes there's just, they're, they always, like, that whiteness thing shows up, right? <laughs> so I'm like, what, 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 is, what is the difference that, and it, between those two types of folks? And I really think, uh, for me, and I know lots of folks in the room probably have lots of ideas, but... For me, it's really a self-awareness, and I think that because whiteness is kind of the default, that it, it's, it's really hard sometimes for white folks to understand how they might be showing up. And so I think it requires coming in with humility, with listening, with giving up some power, um, coming in, I call it listening in color, like not just regular listening, but listening in color. And that means really coming in um, uh, with an open heart and mind with the, the opportunity to change your mind, to change your way of thinking. And um, we've, you know, we often, and, and it's hard when you have power and you've um, been the decision maker to actually give that up. It's a really hard thing to do. And, uh, you know, I've experienced that. I have a little bit of power and I make some decisions and when I have to, I don't get to make the decisions. I'm like, I don't like that, right? <laughs> so, um, but it is about coming into those spaces and really, truly listening. It's not necessarily about becoming an expert on communities. Um, I think we used to say that, like, you need to be in the community and you need to study. In, like, if you're not from a particular community, I don't know if you can ever become an expert on, of that community. I'm Native American, but I am not an expert on all the 550 plus tribes in America. Like, don't ask me what tribes in, in you know, or, Oregon are doing. Like, I, it, we're all different, right? And so, but it is about um, a, a, a state of humility and really listening and letting others lead you into that process and just being open to that and then, um, I think the white savior complex thing just shows up when it's, it's very good intentions, right? But it's like, you know, I'm coming in to save the day and it's the language that we use about marginalized and poor people and I'm coming, you know, and, and so it's not a, a relationship based, it's very transactional, you know? So it is about being in community and being accountable to that community, um, I think are like fantastic ways to, to show up, yeah. Got a question down front. 
uh, one back here. Hi, Edgar. Thanks for sharing your thoughts with us today. So from your experience as a professional in philanthropy, what advice would you give to professionals of color in this sector on how to navigate? Great question. Um, first bit of advice would be to find your people, find your community and find your people. Uh, often for people of color, we are the only person of color in our organization. Times are changing and I'm seeing a little bit more diversity. You might have two or three. Um, <laughs> For me, I was the only person uh, when I started in philanthropy in my organization. I was one of 10 Native Americans in the country that worked in this field. And now there was also an age thing. Uh, I was 28, uh, and I think the, the field is actually, uh, there's more younger folks, which is a good thing. When I started in my first job in philanthropy being 28, I think my next colleague was like 50, and I was like, they are old. Not, not so old now. I'm like, oh, yeah. But, um, but you know, I needed to be with uh, colleagues where I can uh, make sure that I wasn't crazy, that it was them and not me, right? So um, find uh, find folks, and uh, you know, one from a support mechanism, but also to keep you grounded, because even us people of color um, who may not come from wealth or privilege, we can get into these institutions, and our proximity to that power. Um, and that wealth can have our thinking all messed up, right? And the way that we begin to behave and internalize things sometimes, um, we begin leading in ways that are not, uh, that are, are very uh, destructive, I think. So um, I've had folks who have like held me through the hard times, through difficult decisions or things that were happening. And I've also had that, those same friends who have said, Edgar, you need to calm down. You are not all that. You are, you are walking around like this is your money and it's not, right? And, um, and I really appreciate that, you know, that you need people to kind of remind you uh, where you came from and keep you grounded. Um, and I think it, it's also just always do an interrogation about why you're in this work. You know, I think it's, it's interesting now because uh, after 15 years, I mean, the world's changed so much, but you can get a degree in philanthropy, which I, was not a thing when I started. And it's a whole field, like it's a professionalized field. Um, and I meet all kind of young folks and even high school students who are like, I want to work in philanthropy. And I'm like, how do you even know what that is? <laughs> There's like college courses on it, right? So it's very interesting. So I always just, when, I, when young people reach out to me about why they want to work in philanthropy, I kind of just want to, like, I, I want to unpack that with them. It's a fantastic uh, field to work in. I've had a great career um, despite many, many challenges, you know, but... Um, I think that you have to really be driven and centered by community and purpose and not for all the other reasons, like the, the flashy glamour of it all, right? And I think that entices people sometimes to the field for the wrong reasons. The last thing I'll say that's really, really important, I share this story in the book. For me, I lost myself. Um, you know, I'm already Native, so that's an identity of crisis. I'm a Native with like the most Latino name ever. That's another story. <laughs> I look like a Puerto Rican from New York. I'm from the South, for the South, right? And so, like, I've always been like, what is going on here, right? Um, but uh, coming into this foundation, um, at that time, I was, there was really a forced assimilation, like, you, even down to the kind of shoes we wore. Like, it was a very bank, financial type of corporate environment. And, you know, uh, there was, uh, the men wore white shirts and wingtip shoes. And, you know, I came in with my little purple shirt. Mm, not acceptable, right? And so over time, I assimilated to what I thought, the, the kind of leader that I thought I needed to be and how I needed to show up. And I was caught in this divide between my community and like what I needed to do to be successful in this work. 
and gave up a, a big part of myself. Um, and that's something I regretted. And after you know, pouring my life, giving that up, pouring my life into these institutions, um, at a certain point when I decided to leave the organization that I was at, um, I felt betrayed. I, had, I gave up all of this to like try to be with you all and then I was so disposable. And so um, one thing that I've learned from that is that I will never do that again. I will never compromise who I am. Um, I will not, you know, and the way that I want to lead that, that type, that worldview is actually, it's always been in my community. It's always been a part in, in my DNA. It's in my original instructions. And that is actually what makes me a better leader. And so hold on to that and see that as a treasure and just refuse to compromise or give that up. Thank you very much for that um, dissertation. <laughs> My question uh, was kind of a question and a statement. It was kind of piggybacking off of the tech question that was asked earlier. Um, not only are we looking at philanthropy as it relates to uh, you know the new technology and how to get the word out, but I was also looking at it also from a, a Hollywood standpoint and getting that story out. And um, there are different uh, visuals. Again, the generation that we live in today is very visual, and so being able to provide a, a visual movie of some sort, if you would, of the experience of the Native American. Um, Oftentimes, that has been the case also with uh, persons of color. Uh, uh, different stories have come out 20, 30, 50, 60 years later of their uh, successes and whatnot. And which is wondering uh, if there was anything in the works as it relates to any Hollywood contacts that you might have now yeah. um, <laughs> that may be able to bring that to the big screen uh, again to help the masses. No, thank you for that. Uh, who would play me in my movie? Right? <laughs> um, Great question. You know, I it, it's it's been uh, so. I'm very connected to other Native folks who are doing some great work around representation right now because representation matters everywhere, and it absolutely matters in pop culture, in the media, entertainment industry, because we are such major consumers of that, right? And I mean, you all have seen what's going on with this whole Little Little Mermaid debate, like my lord, right? Um, so uh, so uh, there's some data, and I wish that I could remember off the top of my head, but uh, a friend of mine who runs an organization called Aluma Native just did, they did this research um, looking at representation of Native Americans, indigenous folks actually in media, entertainment. And um, the, the, I wish, I, I, don't, I hate to misquote the stat, but it was like something like 70%, like a huge percentage um, of, of women, anytime Native women are in, um, films, uh, they are being raped or abused. That's like the role that, uh, in the movie, which is just like appalling. And when you look at what's happening in the real world right, right now, in our community, in indigenous communities, we have super high numbers of missing and murdered indigenous women. And we've had a hard time getting media attention about indigenous women who just disappear. And so um, there's absolutely a correlation between what we're intaking and digesting and the narratives and the stereotypes that are being perpetuated um, through entertainment. Um, what I'm doing, is, it's been very interesting with this book because when I first wrote it, uh, I thought, you know, some people in nonprofits and philanthropy would read it. And, uh, but I had no idea that, that type of, the type of message uh, would permeate into other sectors and it has actually gotten to Hollywood. I don't have a movie deal. Um, 
but um, it's been, uh, you know, several actors and influencers have read the book, have reached out, have promoted the book. Uh, folks like Mark Ruffalo, who has done a lot for indigenous communities, has been fantastic. Um, about a, a month ago, I had an event in New Orleans with the cast of Queen Sugar, if that's a show that you all know. Um, and that show is just so good if you don't watch it. Um, and there's all the dynamics of the things we're talking about, like looking back into history and understanding the context of place and race and all those things and how um, those uh, issues are showing up in present day challenges in communities for folks. And um, just like all the dynamics are there. And um, when I did that event with the cast of Queen Sugar, um, Don Lynn Gardner, who's the main star, interviewed me on stage. And when I left there, I said, either she truly is like the best actress or this book changed her life because it was, <laughs> she was quoting passages and just telling me how relevant the message is in the entertainment industry. And so I am, I have partnerships. I just became an advisor to a group called Inspired Justice, which is an organization started by the actor Matt McGorry. Um, who plays on How to Get Away with Murder and uh, Orange is the New Black. Um, and it's just like the most woke down white boy you've ever met in your life. Um, he's a major feminist. And um, I think uh, in terms of some, uh, uh, someone using their male and white privilege in a good way, he's, actually, he's like a fantastic example. Uh, we're doing an event in Hollywood in September where we're gonna bring together like all of these influencers and actors and executives from the entertainment industry because a lot of this, as I said, is about a story, right? These are stories that people created and these are narratives that we need to change. And so um, those of us who work in philanthropy, those of us who move money in the world, um, another way to think about that is how are we funding and investing in stories? Who gets to tell their story? Who has the stage? Who has the resources to be able to create a story? And so those are the conversations that I'm gonna have um, in Hollywood with that group of people. So yeah, I'm pushing and, uh, you know, and actually being invited in. Last thing I'll share, I'm gonna overshare, because I just, <laughs> why not? It's like, I want you guys to know what's happening, it's awesome. Um, there's a, a major entertainment uh, company that I had a call with the CEO a few weeks ago, and this is a company that prides themselves on making uh, very socially conscious um, products and, and films and, and whatnot. And um, had this meeting, and it was kind of weird because I'm like, I don't work in that world. I don't know what you want from me, and I don't have an ask of you, uh, you know. Um, uh, and so, but we had this conversation, and he just said, we have a box of your books in our living room. Every person that comes in gets one as a gift. And I, we've just read your book as a company, and I just want to be in community with you. And as a start, and so I just know that beyond entertainment industry, within finance, I've spoken at banks and all kinds of places, there's an appetite in this country for healing. There's an appetite for us to transcend all this like polarization and find a way to like make things work and to, to live in, um, you know, to all thrive together. And so I think the message of, you know, that I'm trying to put out there is that message of healing and hope and it's really just inspirational for a lot of folks. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming to our community and sharing these powerful stories and looking behind neoliberalism at racism and the healing that can come from considering the stories from indigenous peoples around the world. My concern uh, is about land and about the mm -hmm. fact that um, it might, one could say that the species is colonizing 
the ultimate uh, indigenous spirit, Mother Earth. And she's going to be teaching us a few lessons um, uh, over the next few years to come. So how do you see the stories of addressing uh, racism and the, the, the uh, redefining wealth in relationship to the political and economic agenda around um, the planet and the health of the planet? Yeah, thank you. Fantastic question. Two quick thoughts. One is, uh, if you work in sort of the environmental space, you probably know that the majority of uh, biodiversity sort of, I'm probably not using the right words because I don't work in that sector um, very much, but you know, like the rainforest land is under the protection of indigenous peoples around the world. And so I think that folks who care about climate justice and uh, environmental protections um, understand that and are really looking to indigenous folks on uh, for leadership and guidance and wanting to support them. And so, yes, indigenous folks around the world are like keeping us, uh, keeping this planet alive, but um, they're being pushed back and pushed back by corporate interests. Um, for, for me, it's um, as I have really been working to decolonize my own thinking and uh, to understand like how to like show up and think as an indigenous person and especially as it come, relates to like uh, the economy, what I understand there's this whole separation-based economy thing that we have in this country that um, allows um, folks or companies to be focused on making wealth in a way that is, it's like just focus on that and it's separate from people and it's separate from this planet. So the, the only reason that people can sleep at night um, and feel okay about themselves as human beings while their companies are putting kids in cages or while their companies are destroying the oceans is because there's such a separation-based mindset. It's like, I'm okay here in my fence and those things don't impact me, which we all know is, is not right. And so I think an indigenous way, an indigenous perspective of thinking about economy is that true interrelatedness, that every decision I make impacts other people because I don't even know you, I'm, you're my brother, right? Um, and then we also have such a respect for the earth. This is our mother and we gotta, we gotta protect it. We also um, have values in our community around seven generations. So not just what I decide today and how it impacts us and the planet, but it's gonna impact seven generations from now. So that long-term thinking really impacts how we show up and how we protect the land and the decisions that we make about um, you know, each other, but also around the planet. And so if we can find ways to, to lift up and, and honor, and, and Native folks, we are so open source. It's, it's not like folks are over here, we have these indigenous secrets <laughs> we're not telling everybody. We haven't been asked, we haven't been given the platform um, and uh, you know, because we have a way and a vision for the future of our planet and for our communities that is so uh, in contrast to um, many in Wall Street that it, it's being silenced and shut out and even you know, genocide is happening. So we gotta find, a ways, um, find ways to bring that wisdom to the main stage um, and change hearts and minds and really try to tear down that uh, separation-based mentality to understand that you know, right now, because these families are being separated at the border, for example, and these kids are in cages, these are kids that we're gonna be having to take care of. Like the trauma that they have is gonna be passed down for seven, seven generations from now, those kids, are, um, kids, 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 are gonna be suffering trauma because of that. And we as a community are gonna have to figure out how to support and take care of them. Um, if we cannot learn to think in that way, then it's gonna be really hard. So that's sort of my just kind of quick first first-hand response to that. But, yeah. 
Hi. Hey. <laughs> so I, I have tons of questions and I have so many things I want to say, but I just want you to be able to use this platform that you have to make an impact locally because we know how Cleveland is ran um, and we know how philanthropy works here. And, you know, that's the reality. And we don't talk about that enough. And so if you have, you have this opportunity, what do you say to philanthropy on how to really make a true impact and really change the way things are done? Like we need something that these people are here because the folks in the room, I'm not too worried about the people here in the room. I'm sure that they, they, they kind of have, you know, I'm not too worried about it. Yeah. I think they're kind of here for a reason. It's yeah. the folks that, it's the folks that, that are, are not, not in here room, right? in the room that yeah. I need like to hear some of the things you have to say because those are the folks that are never in the room when we have these kind of conversations. So a couple things I would say, um, you know, I think every foundation can start, like I laid out a really big, uh, like the, some of these concepts are, are big, right? There are very practical things that we can start doing to make a difference. One is foundations love data. Let's look at our data, right? So we should look at uh, who are we funding? How are we using these resources? When we have, uh, we looked at data um, two years ago that came out from the Philanthropic Initiative for Racial Equity and found that data showed that only seven and a half to eight percent of grants went to communities of color. So of all the billions of dollars of grants are being made, only a small percentage. And I think we as a sector should feel ashamed about that. I also think it's unjust. And so we need to think about, uh, you know, how did this wealth accumulate in the first place? What was the role of people of color um, and immigrant folks and native folks? What role did they play? Um, whether voluntary or not, uh, to, to help generate this wealth? And are we actually being equitable in the way we're distributing that wealth? And so um, data is a, is a way that can, you can have a baseline and set goals around. And that's something that, uh, you know, easy ask of foundations. And I think we should publicly share that. I think that's data that we should, especially if we are um, public entities, that should be something that we're transparent about and honest about. If we haven't done right by communities of color, I think we can apologize. Some fantastic things happening in Canada and the philanthropic community that have really inspired me. Now, Canada has had a, a truth and reconciliation process there, very public, right, a decade. And so the nonprofit sector, the donors, philanthropic sector have attached to those recommendations to try to fund a lot of the, those reconciliation um, strategies. Um, but foundations in, in um, Canada have really taken a lead to, um, they took a major uh, lead in helping to create that process of truth and reconciliation. I think in our communities, foundations can be spaces. Let's have this conversation. Organizations like this, let's have this conversation. What is the truth? Let's name it. Let's agree with that truth. And let's apologize if we haven't done right by communities of color. Um, you will be so surprised how much an apology, how far that will take you. If a foundation said, you know what? Over the past decade, we've only invested 5% in communities of color. We're sorry. We're wrong. We want to do better. Come in and talk to us. Let's figure this out. That would be huge, right? So um, think about, uh, understand where your wealth came from, apologize, look at your data, make goals and, and, and honest intentions around moving money. And then of course also think about who's working in your uh, organizations. What's the diversity of your staff? What's the diversity of your board? Not just your frontline staff, right? But in your leadership positions and on your board, um, having people of color, not just any people of color, people of color who are accountable to community and have an analysis, right? Um, in those roles can really, really create um, opportunities for you as an organization. 
uh, to, begin to operationalize equity internally, but also in the way that you give and partner with community. Today here at the City Club, we are grateful to have heard from Edgar Villanueva, author of Decolonizing Wealth, Indigenous Wisdom to Heal Divides and Restore Balance. Our forum today is part of our Disruptors series, sponsored by Bank of America. Thank you so much for your support of City Club programming. Mr. Villanueva also appears as part of our Authors in Conversation series, supported in part by the residents of Cuyahoga County through a public grant from Cuyahoga Arts and Culture. We're grateful to the residents of Cuyahoga County for their support of that public grant. Our community partners today include the Young Latino Network, Lake Erie, woo, yes, Lake Erie Native American Council, and give it up for the Soul of Philanthropy Cleveland. <laughs> Additionally, we, we welcome guests and are grateful to guests at tables hosted by the Char and Chuck Fowler Family Foundation, the Cleveland Foundation, and the St. Luke's Foundation. Thank you all for being here today. Our conversation will no doubt continue outside uh, with a book signing with Mr. Villanueva's book, Decolonizing Wealth, Indigenous Wisdom to Heal Divides and Restore Balance. The book sales are provided by a cultural exchange. That brings us to the end of our forum. Thank you, Mr. Villanueva. Thank you, members and friends of the City Club. Our forum is adjourned. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.